please also find a Bible, take out your Bible. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. I cut right to it. That was cool. I have a bright red bookmark that does that for me. We need to pray, so why don't we begin this, this time with prayer here. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful for the fact that you've re- revealed things to us. You've revealed difficult things to us, things about the time of the end, things about what's happening, what's going to happen, what has happened. And I just, I just pray, Lord, that this morning as we, as we, uh, as we reason together from your scriptures, as, as I speak, that you'd help, uh, one, uh, uh, sustain me, give me energy, but then two, Lord, uh, help me to say true things. And most of all, Lord, I, help, I pray for my hearers, I pray for um, the, the congregation this morning, that you would help them. You would help them discern uh, truth and error. You would help them to see what your word says. Lord, just grateful that you promise a blessing just even for reading these words out loud and hearing them read aloud, but you promise a blessing especially for those of us who put these things into practice. So help us to know what to do here this morning. In Jesus' name I ask these things, amen. So in our section today, we're going to continue uh, a section that started, uh, we talked about it two weeks ago, the previous chapter, chapter 11, is an interlude in Revelation, and if you're just joining us, I apologize, we are jumping directly into the center of the series, and um, you'll catch up, don't worry, it'll be fine, uh, this, is probably, this is probably just fine. Um, in chapter 11, we have an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, and the trumpets, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago, they are a series of events or a series of descriptions of the unfolding of God's partial judgment on the earth for their rebellion against him. And the sixth trumpet uh, ends up at the end of the world, uh, the return of Christ, not the end of the world, but the return of Christ, uh, the end of this age, the end of the end. The sixth trumpet describes, just like the sixth seal describes, the end and the return of Christ. And then what happens is John goes into this little interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, which is coming later, and he rewinds history. That's one of the confusing parts about Revelation is John rehashes history several times. And that's why it's something to feel difficult to follow, feel confusing to follow. It can seem like, it looks like Jesus comes back multiple times Throughout history, that's weird. What, what's going on with that? Well, the reason is because John, uh, he, he's not going with a straight narrative from chapter 1 to chapter 22. He's, going, he's taking multiple passes through history. And this interlude in chapters 11 through 14, uh, some have counted another seven, like the seven seals, like the seven trumpets and the seven bowls that are coming. There's another seven here, which are possibly another seven looks at things that are going on either in history or in the future. It depends on your viewpoint. And whether your viewpoint is that these things are happening in the future or happening uh, through history, the, the conclusion is pretty straightforward, the same. I hope to show you that this morning. But the next seven that we see from chapters 11 through 14, we see this, this vision of a mighty angel. We see this vision about two witnesses preaching. We're going to see today this vision of a woman and a dragon and some things that go on there. We're going to see next week the vision of a sea beast and then the vision of a land beast. Then we're going to see a vision of the Lamb and his 144,000. And then we're going to see a vision of the proclamation of three angels declaring things. 
And depending on how you slice those events, some people slice the seven in different ways, but there's, there's a possible collection of seven things going on here. So some scholars have called this, there's the seven, uh, there's the seven seals, there's the seven trumpets, and now there's the seven histories. So that's one way of thinking of this. It's not as obvious. They just were looking for a label. It looks like there's a seven here. What should we call it? The answer is we should call it the seven histories. Okay, cool. So we're in the second or third one of those, depending on how you count it. That's what we're doing today. You don't have to remember any of that. <laughs> Each of these visions that John is having in chapters 11 through 14, they have their own message and they lead up to the description of the final judgment that's coming in uh, the description of the seven bowls of God's wrath in chapters 15 and 16. Some, uh, some and I agree with this, I, I, I like this. Some have called chapters 12 through 14 the heart of Revelation. The heart of Revelation. I, I said when I taught on chapter 11 that some have called it sort of the climax of Revelation, the announcement that the kingdom of, our Lord, uh, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And everybody sings, hallelujah, hallelujah. The, the famous Messiah, hallelujah chorus is after that uh, chapter. What we're going to see today and next week is that in this heart of Revelation, John is pausing and backing up, and he's revealing something. This whole book is revealing things. And what John is doing in our chapter today and in the chapter next week is he's introducing us to our enemy. He's introducing the church to its enemy. He's peeling back the curtain on what we can see, and he's showing us our enemy in the spiritual realm, because that's where our enemy is. He's showing us the true enemy of the church, the power behind all the persecution, the power behind all the suffering, the power behind all the oppression. What is going on? And what he's showing us is that in the spiritual realm, there is a dragon causing trouble for us. The dragon and his beasts create a false trinity, counterfeiting God's work, trying to deceive people. And today we're going to meet the first of these three, the first of the false trinity, the dragon. So what I want to do is read chapter 12, and then we'll try our best to sort through what is going on. So if you will read with me, chapter 12, we're going to stop at verse 17. There's a chapter break in an awkward place. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads were seven crowns, and its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male, who was going to rule, or the word there may be shepherd, all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for her by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. 
Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth helped the woman. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the river and that the dragon had spewed from its mouth so that the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. We'll stop there. All right, I'd like to try to sort through what is going on here. And I'd like to do that by introducing you to the cast of characters in order of appearance. The first character that we have in this section is the woman. Who is this woman? Well, you know, we've been talking these past several weeks about different views, uh, the different views that the church has had um, about Revelation throughout the ages. But here's the cool thing about this passage. Uh, most all of the views, uh, most all the main views, pretty well agree on who these images are, which is, makes my life a lot easier. Um, the thing they disagree on is when this all happens. So we'll get to that in a second. This woman is Israel, is the people of God. It draws from many of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, this image draws from many Old Testament prophets who characterize Israel or the people of God as a woman. And in some of the prophecies, they even talk about her as a woman about to give birth. Um, and I want to say, too, uh, in, we've talked in the last several weeks when we were dealing with uh, imagery and revelation, we need to ask ourselves the question, where have we heard this before? Right? That's, that's a question that I hope by the end of this series you'll have ingrained in your brain. Where have I heard this before? And uh, for the most part so far, um, well, we've talked about the five different possibilities of where we might have heard it before, right? It's a clear allusion to the Old Testament. It's, it's a clear imagery from the Old Testament. Or uh, it's a clear restatement of clear New Testament teaching. Or um, it is a widely... Uh, widely known historic illusion, cultural illusion that the first century audience would have understood and that we still have evidence of today. Or John explicitly says uh, what the image means. Or we just don't know and don't need to do anything about it. Those are the five. So far, we've spent most of our time with, look, it's just this clear Old Testament reference. We haven't spent much time 
with the third one, or the fourth, fourth one? Fourth one. A clear cultural reference that the hearers would have been familiar with that we still are aware of today. And the tricky part about the next couple chapters is that we get some more of that. And, I'm, and this is where, all, you know, if you want my sources later, I'm happy to give them to you. But the basic idea is that in a lot of Hebrew commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, it's called the Midrash, uh, we actually still have manuscripts of this stuff written down. It's not in the Bible. It's outside of the Bible. In fact, part of the reason that the first century Jews got in trouble with their theology was because they were paying more attention to the commentary than to the scriptures. But in the scriptures, we see some of the same imagery. And so we know from the Midrash, we know from this Old Testament commentary that John also would have been familiar with, and his audience would have been familiar with, that uh, several things. One, this woman, uh, some, of the, some of the illustration of the stars on her head and some of, the, some, of the, um, some of the more descriptive illustrations of what's going on with her, uh, moon under her feet, crown of 12 stars on her head, clothed with the sun. We find that language in the Midrash. That's, that's what's going on there and, and some other places. Also, interestingly, uh, we find some of the same imagery in Roman mythology and in Egyptian mythology. So... Uh, one of John's points here, one of John's points here with that Roman and Egyptian mythology is uh, that his first century audience would have been familiar with, and we can still find writing about today, is that all of the gods of the nations that are oppressing God's people, all of those gods and all those stories about who has power and why, those are cheap copies, counterfeits of the real thing. The real thing that's going on with the woman giving birth to a son and a dragon is not the god Apollos uh, being persecuted by the dragon python. That's not what's happening. What's actually happening is a spiritual reality of Israel giving birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Our true God is stronger than their false tales. That's part of what's going on here. Another thing we know from the, the Midrash is that with the description of the stars and uh, the moon and, and those sorts of things, is that this is indicating not merely genetic ethnic Israel. The woman is not merely indicating genetic ethnic Israel, but it's indicating Israel, the faithful Israel, those that keep the commandments, those that worship the true God. And um, this, these are referred to in the New Testament as the remnant. I could give you my sources later if you're interested. Uh, it's pretty nerdy. But um, if you want to, that, that's what a lot of this is, what's going on here with a lot of this imagery. Note that the woman is carried away to the wilderness where she is nourished. And I'll talk about the, the, the time period in a little bit. But she's nourished in the wilderness. And I wanted to say, especially for us conservative right-wing Americans, not all of you in here are that, and that's, that's fine. Uh, that's actually great. That's one of the things I love about this church is the spectrum that we have here. But I have, I have known conservative right-wing Americans that say, look, in the end times, we're supposed to flee to the wilderness and set up shop and, and be protected out there in the wilderness and hide out while all the bad stuff is going down. And I want to just tell you, that's not what this is about. That's not what's going on here. The image is much cooler than that. The image is much more powerful than that. The image is from Exodus. The image is of the Exodus desert wandering. What did God do with Israel in the desert? He nourished them miraculously in spite of their suffering, in spite of their disobedience. He nourished them. He fed them. 
He provided for them. And now, if you want to have a bunker with, with uh, rations and guns and stuff, that's fine. That's cool. Um, just don't rely on it for your safety. Don't take comfort in your bunker. Don't take comfort in your ration pile. Take comfort in your God who will provide for you, even if you're stranded in the desert. Okay? Um, I do, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about halfway in that prepper mentality. I have a stockpile of food and, and some other things like that. You know, if stuff goes down, I want to be ready, right? But that's not where I find my security. So all I'm saying is for you preppers out there, I say that lovingly, I'm halfway there with you. Okay, that's... It's saying that we are in a period of desert wandering, church. That's what's going on. We are in a period of desert wandering. We're not home yet. We're on our way to a promised land. And in the meantime, God will provide for us just like he did for Israel on their way to the promised land. That's what's going on, uh, at least in part, with the image of the woman about to give birth. The dragon and his angels. What's going on here? Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. This is all imagery from Daniel 7. It's a clear allusion there. I'm going to, if that's okay with you, you have to come back next week to find out what's going on with that stuff. Okay, I'm going to toss that forward to next week. Um, we get to see, too, who is this dragon? Well, John explicitly tells us. He's Satan, the devil. He sweeps a third of the stars from heaven. It's an interesting comment. It's like John is like, he sweeps a third of the stars from heaven and he just moves on. Like, you should all catch that, right? Y'all caught that, right? No. <laughs> no, we didn't. There's, I, I, think, I see two kind of reasonable options among the options here. Uh, one is that it's a reference to Daniel 8.10. And in Daniel 8.10, the beast or Satan defeats some of the angels. He defeats some of the angels. And in Daniel 8, the angels are representative of God's people on earth. And so what ends up happening is that the beast is successful in trampling some of the people of God. And so what we have here is an image of persecution, of the beast's earthly persecution of the saints, represented by the spiritual reality. There's another option. I like it a little better. Neither really matters. I'm just, you know, details are fun sometimes. Uh, some think that this describes the satanic rebellion in heaven. Uh, when the angel Lucifer fell and took a third of the angels with him, Isaiah 14 describes the angel Lucifer falling from heaven. Um, and this uh, combined with this passage in Revelation that a third of the stars came with him and a later comment about uh, the devil and his angels, the, the thought is that's where he got his angels. He deceived them by sweeping them out of heaven with him. He convinced them to come along with me. This God is unjust. I like this one a little better. It's, to be honest, it's a little irrelevant to the meaning of the passage. It's just interesting, and it reinforces this idea that Satan is a deceiver, and he has deceived angels with him. But what's he doing? Let's pay attention to that. So enough speculation about what the third of the angels is. What is he doing? Well, he's trying to stop the offspring of the woman, isn't he? This woman is giving birth to a very important person, and he wants to kill him. He wants to, the devil wants to kill him. What's he doing? He's trying to stop the offspring of the He's trying to devour the son. And then what happens? He and his angels, they lose a battle with the angel Michael and Michael's angels. And they're booted out of heaven. We'll talk about that more too. 
And it says once he's booted out of heaven, he goes to make war with the offspring of the woman. Where else do we see a dragon, the devil, making war with the offspring of the woman who, by the way, are God's people? We see it in 1 Peter 5.8. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's a warning we get. The church got in the first century, we get today. The spiritual reality is there's a dragon slash lion. There's a lion dragon and he's lying. <laughs> and he's lying around, lying to you, trying to devour you. He's making war on the offspring of the woman. That's, that's the dragon. He's the devil. Who's this son? This one's easy. Why is this one easy? He will rule all nations with an iron rod. That's from Psalm 2. That's from Psalm 2, and it's referring to the Messiah. She gives birth to the Messiah. Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah that comes from the nation of Israel, the most important character in the entire Bible, Jesus. Interestingly, he just makes a, he just gets a brief mention here. And then Michael comes onto the scene and his angels. What's going on here? I think uh, there's a similar image, by the way, in Daniel um, in chapter 12. Michael shows up a few times in Daniel. He shows up a few times here in Revelation, and he shows up once in James. There's a pretty clear tie to what's going on in Daniel chapter 12. He, who is this Michael? He's called the chief captain of the armies of the Lord and the chief guardian angel of God's people. That's who Michael is. This is complicated, and I, maybe someday we'll do a sermon series on angels and what's going on with the angels and who Michael is, who Gabriel is, and all the other ones that we know about. But I think the main point here is really it's a strong and it's an encouraging one. That even though God's people are under attack from the devil, from the dragon, we are being spiritually guarded by a powerful angelic army in the spiritual realm. And he is successful, Michael and his angels, in tossing the Satan out of heaven. There's a lot more to say. There always is. Final character we see here, it's actually characters. It's the rest of the offspring of the woman. These are Jesus' brothers and sisters, Christians. He says, I no longer call you slaves. I call you brothers and sisters. This is the church. This is describing the church. So that's, that's all pretty clear, and, and almost all the views agree on this. There's some, there's some that think that the woman may be Mary. I think there's a lot of evidence that it's not. None of the rest of the description of what happens to Mary fits. Uh, what happens to Mary and Mary's children fits. Um, Israel, it just clicks. It works. The disagreement between the views comes in. When does this all happen? Uh, well, it happens through a, a, course, a period of time that is labeled here 1260 days in time, times, and half a time. We've seen this time period previously as well in chapter 11. And uh, we see it later. Next week we'll see it as 42 months. And this time period, time, times, and half a time, it's about three and a half years. If time is a year, times are two years, and half a time is the half a year. And that fits really nicely with Daniel's, uh, Daniel's dates in Daniel 7, Daniel 12. These dates show up 
throughout, there's, there's a reference, and if you want them, I'll just put them up here quick. Revelation 11, 2 through 3, Revelation 12, verse 6, Revelation 12, verse 14, Revelation 13, verse 5, Daniel 7, 25, Daniel 12, 7, and Daniel 12, 10 through 12. All reference this time period. And this three and a half years fits really nicely in Daniel's scheme of sevens. We, this is not a sermon series on Daniel. Maybe we should have done that first, to be honest. Um, <laughs> But this three and a half year time period, I just want to say that there are some, some people, some positions believe that this is a literal three and a half year time period, uh, part of a time of the seven years of tribulation. We've got the first three and a half and then the second three and a half. So some would see that these verse references refer to one half of that and then another half of that. And another view, and the, one, the view that I hold, uh, says that this is all referring to the same period of time. And here's what I want to show you. Um, here's what I want to show you. If this is all referring to the same period of time, here's the picture that we get when we put this time, times, half a time, 1260 days, 42 months, we put it all together. What's happening during this period of time? Well, the first thing we see is that the nations are trampling the area around God's temple, but the people inside are kept safe. And that's, a, as, I, as I preached two weeks ago, that is a spiritual imagery of those who are in Christ are safe spiritually from the onslaught of the world. The second thing that's going on is that the two witnesses in this time period, they have their prophetic ministry. So in the future view, this would be um, a special ministry of two, individual, two very unique individuals who do very unique things. And in my view, this is the ministry of the church throughout the ages. By the way, it's not Matt's view. This is a very historic. Both of these things I'm talking about are both historic. They go all the way back to the second century uh, I'll argue, go all the way back to John, <laughs> uh, first century A.D. Um, we have two church fathers. I think I've said this previously, but in case you missed it, two guys who were the next generation after John, as soon as John died, they started arguing, is this about the future or is this about the now? And uh, we haven't solved it in 2,000 years. I'm not going to pretend to solve it today. I'm just uh, telling you where I stand. The two witnesses have their prophetic ministry, meaning the church preaches and fulfills its ministry. It's safe as long as it's carrying out its ministry. And then it says when that time period is done, they're allowed to be killed by the beast. They're allowed to be put down by the beast. And then they're resurrected miraculously and everybody goes, what? The third thing we see happening is that the woman is nourished and protected by God against the attacks of the dragon. Most notably, the dragon tries to wipe people out with a flood. Where have we heard that before? Genesis. The whole earth was wiped out because of their wickedness. It was a flood of judgment on the earth. God reset everything with a flood. The dragon tries to accuse people with the same judgment, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't work. The woman is nourished and protected by God against the attacks of the dragon during that time. So what we have is something very similar to the image of the nations trampling the court the courts of the temple, but they're protected inside the temple and the altar. What else happens? The beast utters blasphemies and exercises authority and oppresses God's people. That happens in Revelation and in Daniel. What else happens? Many people are purified, cleansed, and refined, and the wicked, they remain wicked and do not repent. That's from Daniel chapter 12. That's what happens during the time period described. And this is why, I, as I lay out my case, I can see this might be referring to a special period of seven years of this happening, or three and a half years of this happening, or 
it might be describing the entire time from the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ to his second coming. And I think that because of Daniel chapter 12. I think that because of Daniel chapter 12. And in Daniel chapter 12, it is revealed to Daniel that this time period, this time times half a time, this 1200, and it says in Daniel, 90 days, which is another trick we've got to maybe deal with. If you're curious, we can talk later. This says this is the time of the end. This time period refers to the time of the end in Daniel chapter 12. And he says explicitly that this time period lasts from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished to the appearance of the abomination of desolation. There's three views on when this happens, when this time period is, not just the two I've been mentioning. But one interpretation of Daniel 12 is that the time that the daily sacrifice was abolished happened in 70 AD when the temple sacrifice was abolished. (laughs) Jews have not been able to sacrifice in the temple since 70 AD. The future view would say that somehow the temple's going to be rebuilt and then abolished again. And so that this end time happens in the future after the rebuilding of the temple and a reabolishment of it. And then the abomination of desolation in this view would be the appearance of the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians, the final capital A Antichrist, the end of the end. And both views hold that. There's a third view, the preterist view. The, the preterist just means past. So you have the future view and you have the past view would say, would say that this refers to either um, Antiochus Epiphanes in the first century BC or the destruction of the Roman, uh, the destruction of the temple by the Roman Empire in 70 AD or both. We have two actual, two things that happened after this prophecy of Daniel that fit the time period of these weeks and days that either happened in the first century BC or the first century AD, a couple hundred years later. It's possible that both refer to that. Now that I've thoroughly confused you, I just want to say that my viewpoint is that this is all happening from the time of the resurrection of the Christ, the resurrection of Christ, till his return. This is the kind of thing that happens. I think this is an accurate description of the experience of the church. And it may be that in the future, in a seven-year period or a three-and-a-half-year period in the future, this stuff intensifies in a special way. That could be. I can actually believe both things. That's pretty great. With that in mind, I want to give you a summary of what is going on with this woman and the dragon, and then move on to the point of this passage. I think if you put all the pieces together of this section, this confusing imagery of this dragon and this woman and the children and the Michael and his angels and floods and stuff, I think here you have a picture, John is painting a picture of the history of the church from its inception after Christ's resurrection to the end when Christ returns. I'm using, by the way, for those who are paying attention, I'm using this 40-year period between um, Christ's resurrection and the destruction of the temple. I'm kind of considering that one point in time, if you're paying attention. Here's what I think this section is describing. First, we have the woman, Israel, producing the child, the Messiah, Jesus. Next, the dragon, Satan, and his fallen angel army tries to stop that from happening, but is unsuccessful. He fails because God protected the Messiah. He protected the woman and the child. He always has preserved the remnant. No nation, no exile was ever able to crush the people of Israel from the beginning of Israel through today and into the future. God preserves her, protects her, and especially protects the line of the Messiah. 
This earthly scene then is repeated in another heavenly scene, the war in heaven, the dragon making war with Michael and his angels. So what is happening on earth is pictured by the woman and the dragon, that the earthly life, the earthly experience of Israel and the church is playing out in that first vision. And in the second vision, we get the spiritual reality in heaven reflected in the dragon making war with Michael and his angels who fight on behalf of God's people in the spiritual realm. But the result is the same. The result is the same. Satan and his angels are cast down to the earth and a detail is added. The devil's primary weapon is deception. Where do we see that? I, I didn't mark it in my notes. It's probably important that I tell you. We'll find it later. Primary weapon is deception. Next thing that happens, a heavenly voice declares the outcome of the failure of the dragon to stop the child of the woman. That's what a voice in heaven declares, is declaring the outcome of the devil's failure to stop Jesus. Another way to say that positively is the heavenly voice is declaring the outcome of Jesus' earthly ministry. The, child, the, mission is, the child's mission is accomplished and Jesus is given authority, power, and a kingdom resulting in salvation for God's people and resulting in the devil being cast from heaven to the earth. And so finally, the devil, having been cast out of heaven, is furious and makes war on God's people, but they are protected ultimately by God, especially spiritually they are protected. And that's why we have the exhortation in 1 Peter 5, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And this is setting up expectation. Christians, here's what your life is like. You have a very ticked off dragon. He failed at his mission. He was crushed. And now because he is so upset, he is waging war. And that explains all of the oppression, all the persecution. It explains why the world is so mad at us. Because we have this spiritual power of the dragon animating governments, animating powers, animating people to oppose us. One commentator said very, very powerfully, Satan goes to war against our bodies because he has lost the war for our souls. That's why we experience persecution. That's why some people are just blind and they don't get it. That's why people hate us. That's why when you go on the spring break trip, some people are going to be mad at you. We pray for you for that. It's going to get really real. And I hope all of you have an opportunity to ex experience that firsthand and first person in your life too. Because it's extremely encouraging in our faith when we recognize, ah, I know why this is happening. This is not this person's fault. They're deceived by our enemy, the dragon. Satan goes to war against our bodies because he has lost the war for our souls. The point of this section, the point of this section, we can debate all those details, and if you have been writing down your counter-debate points to my amillennial, you know, eclecticist view on this is happening during the church age and not in the future, that's great. We can do that. That'll be fun. I will enjoy sitting down over coffee or whatever and, and, and hashing out the final details, but whatever, we can debate those details, but I think what is undebatable, and I think you'll agree with me, I think everybody who has studied this and knows will agree with me, that debate may detract from the most important point made in this entire section. And I would worry that the debate and the focus in on the 1260 days, the 42 months, the exact, you know, how many scales were on the dragon, what shade of red he was or whatever. I'm, I'm worried that would detract from the main point of this section. 
and possibly the second most important point in the entire book of Revelation. The first most important point in the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins. He conquers. He's the king of the universe, and he's going to reign for eternity. Hallelujah. The second most important point in the book of Revelation. To get at this point, we need to remind ourselves of where this book started. It's a letter to seven churches. Revelation is a letter to seven churches. Seven churches in the first century in Asia Minor. We have them addressed in chapters two and three. And through them, they are addressed to us and to all other churches throughout church history. And what are these seven churches told? What are these seven churches told? Brad did an excellent job of that. At the beginning of the series, I suggest you go and rehearse and reread and restudy. But they are all told to hold fast to the faith, and they are promised that if they conquer, they will receive a reward. Each church given a unique facet of the same reward specific to their situation, but I think all seven rewards apply to all the churches and all the Christians throughout history. Revelation 2, verse 7, to the one who conquers. I love it. Actually, it starts, I'm going to start back. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2.11, to the one, who the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Revelation 2 verse 17, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will, give him, I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Chapter 3, verse 5. The one who conquers will be dressed in white robes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out of it. I will write my name on him, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, my new name. When you, sheep of Christ, come in and conquer, he's going to take you, he's going to hold your hand, he's going to write his name, he's signing his work. And finally, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I conquered and sat down on my father, with my father on his throne. This conquering is the point of Revelation chapter 12. How does the church conquer? Conquering sounds great. I want that reward. Do you? Do you? Amen. How do we do it? Revelation 12 tells us. 
Verse 11, they conquered him. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even to the point of death. Do you want to conquer and receive that reward? How does the church conquer? The church conquers by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. What does it mean that we conquer by the blood of the lamb? John has been telling us this entire time if we were listening. In chapter five, verse five, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll in its seven seals. And then they sang a new song, verse nine. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because, because why is he worthy? Why does he conquer? Why is he worthy? Because you were slaughtered. Oh, wait, what? You are worthy because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. How do we conquer? By the blood of the lamb. What does the blood of lamb, the lamb do? It purchases us and makes us a kingdom and priests to God so that we will reign with him on his throne, with the father on his throne. That's how we conquer, by the blood of the lamb. One more, chapter seven, verse 13. Then one of the elders said to me, who do you think these people are in white robes? And where do you think they came from? And I said, wise answer, John, sir, you know. (laughs) And then he told me, here's who they are. They're the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in the temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. That's not talking about a small select group of people, church. It's talking about all of us who have our robes dipped in the blood, cleansed in the blood of the lamb. That's how we conquer the dragon. Jesus did it. This also answers the question that you may be worried about when it comes to Revelation and thinking about the end times. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Will I be able to stand up against this scary beast? Will I be able to stand up against this dragon? It seems like an overwhelming power. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it through. The answer is, on what basis do you conquer the dragon? Jesus. The question you are asking when you are asking, I'm not sure I'm going to make it, you're really asking, I'm not sure Jesus can do it. And when we examine that question, we would all, well, no, I believe Jesus can do it. I was asking whether I can. To which I would respond, then what are you hoping in? Whose power are you trying to conquer with? If you try to conquer by your own strength, I guarantee you'll fail. Red dragons are very powerful. (laughs) But not too powerful for a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. What does it mean that we conquer by the word of our testimony? 
John already told us this too. But he told us in 1 John, this is cheating a little bit. The church would have had this. 1 John chapter 5. I'd, I'd recommend reading the whole chapter, 1 John 5, when it comes to what is this testimony. But I'm just going to go straight to where John says, and this is the testimony. <laughs> Verse 11. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Do you want to know if you conquer the dragon or not? You conquer by the word of your testimony. And that is not talking about your personal faith story. By the way, I recommend, by the way, that you write out your personal faith story and that you tell people your personal faith story, but that's not the same as the testimony from Revelation chapter 11 that you conquer with. You conquer with this testimony, this one. When the devil accuses you, your answer is not, I had this conversion experience. Your answer is not, I prayed this prayer. You do not conquer the dragon by pleading how good of a Christian you are and how many times you go to church and how often you've read your Bible and how many worship songs you know and the fact that you never watch any of those movies. I only watch the other ones. I listen to these CDs, not these ones. Sorry, CDs. What are CDs? <laughs> At least I didn't say tapes. That's where I started. I only stream this Spotify channel. Did I do it right? Is that, is that right? No? Not anymore? <laughs> Stop it, Matt. You're making it worse. <laughs> the testimony we throw back at Satan when he accuses us is not I had this conversion experience. It's not I prayed this prayer. It's not I'm such a great person. It is God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. I have the son. The one who does not have the son does not have life. That's the testimony that we conquer the dragon with. God's people, the church, the one who conquered the dragon. Look at chapter 12, verse 17. I want you all to actually do this. Everybody, please take out a Bible and look at verse 17. Everybody in the room, if you're a skeptic here, if you're a skeptic here, or if you think you're a Christian, and I, I've heard this before, I'm good. I want everybody, please, with me. I don't command things like this very often, but I think this, I think this will be good. Who are the people that conquer the dragon. Verse 17. Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. Is that you? Chapter 12, verse 17. The ones who conquer the dragon are those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. Are you worried about this dragon? You should be. Part of the reason I'm so insistent that it's a present reality, not a future one in seven years, is because this dragon, everybody agrees with this, even the people who believe this is talking about seven years in the future. This dragon is on the earth prowling around seeking to devour us by deceiving us into thinking that there is something better than Jesus. 
something better than God's commands, something better than the life of a Christian, the life of suffering, the life of joy and hope that comes with knowing Christ. Are you among those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus? That's a question for you and your soul between you and God, but I would love to talk to you about it after the service if you have questions about it. I'll be right down here. Two more points real quick. One, who does the church conquer? We already answered how the church conquers. Who does the church conquer? This is important. Go back to verse 11. This is all about chapter 12, verse 11. They conquered him. Who? The dragon. Satan. Church, we don't set about conquering peoples, nations, kings, and taking over governments and taking over the media and taking over professional sports. We don't conquer by recapturing earthly cities. We don't conquer by retaking earthly land. We conquer him. Our struggle is against Satan. And we're going to have a whole lot more on this next week when we talk about the dragon and his beasts. Who was the church conquering? Satan. Why does the church conquer? We know how. We know who. Now we're going to find out why the church, those who do conquer, why do they conquer? How is it that that works? They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony because or for they did not love their lives even to the point of death. And this is maybe the hardest part about Revelation and the thing I think some of us are kind of scared of. Not all of us are going to be killed for our faith. Not all of us are going to have a sword held to our throat or a gun held to our head or some other threat of physical death. But some of us might, and many have throughout history. The question for us is, are we ready if it becomes our turn? And the answer is right now, no, you're not, and that's why you're scared. You don't need to be scared. Jesus promised us this. In Luke and in other places, he says, I think it's just in Luke. When they drag you away and put you before the judges, don't worry about what you're going to say. I will give you words in that day. There's a concept a friend of mine likes to call real-time grace. The reason we have a hard time imagining being able to withstand suffering right now is because God is not giving us the grace right now to withstand suffering because we don't need it yet. The testimony of the martyrs throughout history is in that moment, they found the grace, they found the courage. It was miraculous. It was miraculous. They don't know where it came from or why it came. 
This reality, that they did not love their lives even to the point of death, that can be yours now. That can be yours now. Jesus taught his disciples, do not fear the one who can only kill the body and after that has nothing more they can do to you. That verse sticks out to me every single time. <laughs> the only thing they can do to you is kill you. Oh, uh. <laughs> and after that, there's nothing more they can do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But do you understand his point? Fear the one who can kill, destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Christians, when we die here, we just get to go be with Jesus. That's going to be awesome. And even Paul, the apostle, was like, I don't know what's better. It would be far better for me to pass on. And then I get to be with Jesus. For me, death is Christ. Death is gain because it's Christ. But it's far better for me to stay here because my brothers and sisters need me. I have a mission left to do. That was his conclusion. We have a mission left. And as soon as that mission is done, he's going to take us. We don't have to worry about cutting it short. We don't have to worry about what's going to go on. This reality, this reality unlocks the mystery, I think, of the Christian life. The power we have available to us is here. I don't care if they kill me. What can you do with a man who doesn't fear death? Not much. Praise the Lord, I don't have to face that right now. It's easy to be like all bravado when we're not underground. We're in this giant building in the middle of town. We have a glowing sign on our front that says Stonebrook Church. <laughs> That's great. But I pray for grace that if that day comes when we have to go underground, that I'll still have the same attitude. I'm practicing now. We are unconquerable when we love not our lives even unto death. Because it's through fear of death that Satan holds power. Look up Hebrews 12, 14 at some point. It's through the fear of death that Satan keeps us slaves. F.F. Bruce, I'm going to skip the F.F. Bruce quote. You can just slide past that slide. Paul taught this. We're going we're gonna to transition here. Transition here. This is, the last, this is the last thing. This is not just a revelation teaching. This is actually taught throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4. Here's what he means. We have this treasure. What treasure? Salvation, ministry, the stuff we're doing here on this earth. We have this treasure from God in jars of clay. What does that mean? Uh, it means that, um, well, so that the extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We do our work imperfectly. We're cowardly sometimes. We don't always share the gospel with the person sitting next to us on the airplane, right? Just stuff like that. We chicken out sometimes, right? It happens. Broken clay pots. That's what he's talking about here. So that the extraordinary power may be from God, not us. Nobody can say, man, you're just like a perfect 100% A plus 1,000 batting average evangelist. Nobody can say that about us. But here's the point. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not abandoned. He's with us. We are struck down, martyred, killed, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body. We're always ready so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. The only way you can truly show the reality of the Christian life is with this thought, this attitude, this mindset. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. Skip down to verse 16. Therefore, we do not give up. 
even though our outer person is being destroyed, either through martyrdom or sickness or suffering or whatever persecution or whatever failure or whatever discouragement, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary and light affliction. Knife to the throat, gun to the head, firing of your job because you're refusing, imprisonment from the government because you're disobeying, Disease, illness, joblessness, for Christ's sake, light and momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. We don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony because they loved not their lives even to death. The blood of the Lamb, this reality, brings light to this thing we do on a monthly basis here at Stonebrook called communion. This is not just a religious ritual that we take part in. We are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, proclaiming the death of Jesus. And he's using that as shorthand for everything we just got done talking about. And we're going to celebrate communion this morning. I hope with fresh eyes.